This is Weekly Signals Interviews, broadcast every Tuesday morning from 8 to 9 on KUCI 88.9 FM, Irvine, California. I'm Nathan Callahan. And I'm Mike Kaspar. Before the 2004 election and during the ensuing months when many Americans were trying to understand how an administration marked by cronyism, disregard for the national budget, and poorly disguised self-interest had been reinstated, our guest today, Michelle Goldberg, traveled through the heartland of a country in the grips of a fevered religious radicalism, the America of our time. In her new book, Kingdom Coming, The Rise of Christian Nationalism, Goldberg shows how an increasingly overbearing fundamentalism is gaining traction throughout our national life. Goldberg is a senior writer at Salon.com, where she has reported extensively on both sides of America's ever-seething cultural war. Michelle Goldberg, welcome to Wakely Signals. Hi, thanks for having me. How are you today? Pretty good. Is, uh, you're, I'm calling you in New York, right? Is it, yeah, I'm in Brooklyn. Is it, is it sunny there today? It's sunny. It's kind of hazy and yeah. hot. Oh, that combination. <laughs> so uh, tell, give us a, a little bit of a, a description of uh, Christian nationalism. Can you define that for us before yeah, we get sure. into this? Yeah, sure. And I want to um, be careful to separate Christian nationalism from evangelical Christianity okay. because they're two different concepts. Um, evangelical Christianity, you know, about 30 to 40 percent of Americans identify as evangelicals. And Christian nationalism is a smaller subset of that. So I think we're talking about 10 to 15 percent of the population. And it's much more a political ideology, really, than a religious, than a religious belief system. It holds that it has a revisionist history of America, so it holds that America was founded as a Christian nation, that the founders never intended to separate church and state. And you can see that the Texas Republican Party refers to the need to um, undo what they call the myth of separation. Mm. And so they believe essentially that America's um, kind of has undergone this long decline in the last hundred years as it has moved further from its Christian roots, and that it needs to be re-Christianized in order to kind of regain its past glory. And so you can see the results of this in everything from this kind of bogus revisionist history, um, you know, kind of infiltrating public schools, to people in the administration talking about the kind of need to use faith and use scriptural authority as a kind of um, policy-making tool. You can, you know, every, you can t- see it in the promotion of abstinence programs funded by the government, run by evangelical churches, and, you know, taught in somewhere around 30% of the schools, taught exclusively in 30% of the schools, meaning it's the only kind of sex ed kids are getting. You know, you can see it in the UN, where increasingly, and this is one of the things I think people know about the least, um, you see the kind of religious right representatives that Bush has put on various delegations to UN women's rights conferences and reproductive rights conferences, teaming up with representatives from radical Muslim countries in order to kind of block um, reproductive rights initiatives, you know, supported by most of the developed world. Mm-hmm. Now, what's, could you give me an example of, of just... Uh, the revisionist history. Can you give me one of the <laughs> biggest, uh, let's see, how would you say that? The, uh, 
the biggest violations of, of our, our history, the, the propaganda that they're putting out there, what would you say is one of the, uh, you know, the things that they're repeating the most to, uh, to, 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 uh, for their side? Sorry well, I would that. say it's really this idea that separation of church and state is a myth. Um, yeah. And the kind of, the probable, the leading revisionist historian is a guy named David Barton. Um, mm-hmm. Until until this spring, he was the vice chairman of the Texas Republican Party. But he also churns out these books that basically try to, they kind of will troll through the founders' writings, take things out of context, patch things together to suggest that the founders were all conservative Christians who were trying to create a conservative Christian country. And these books are really, really influential. You can, you know, if you look through the congressional record, you'll see people citing them in arguments about all different kinds of church-state controversies. You'll see David Barton was put on the payroll of the RNC in 2004 to travel the country talking to pastors about getting out the vote for the Republican Party. And... You know, I can just read you something that I have in my book that I think gives you an example of how this kind of misreading of history creates a kind of really um, chauvinistic politics. Mm-hmm. This is from 2000 when a Hindu priest was became a Hindu priest was asked to offer an invocation before Congress, and the Family Research Council, which is a kind of major Christian nationalist group, issued this statement saying. While it is true that the United States of America was founded on the sacred principle of religious freedom for all, that liberty was never intended to exalt other religions to the level that Christianity holds in our country's heritage. Our founders expected that Christianity and no other religion would receive support from the government as long as that support did not violate people's consciences and consciousnesses and their right to worship. They would have found utterly incredible the idea that all religions, including paganism, be treated with equal deference. And you can see the kind of real-world result of that in the faith-based initiative. I mean, there has been some faith-based initiative for other religious groups, but the vast majority of these billions of dollars that Bush has channeled into the faith-based initiative is going to sectarian religious service, sectarian religious social services that explicitly refuse to hire non-Christians in many cases, even though, even for positions that are 100% funded by taxpayer money, which is a really big departure from the way things have been done in this country for a long time. I want to remind our listeners, we're speaking with Michelle Goldberg, her book, Kingdom Coming, The Rise of Christian Nationalism. Um, I want to I just take, I want to move the conversation just a little bit towards the role of government, and that's obviously what the what the aim of these people is, is this sort of imposition. I always look at government, uh, I mean, in degrees, but this sort of the invisible hand of government. In other words, as long as you, it, it a lot of laws are there so that we can't do something, that you, we don't want you to, you know, murder, rape, and all the rest of it, so there are here the laws and law enforcement that's in place. What's different about this to me, what, what makes it more dangerous and more invasive is that, in fact, these are very proactive uh, movements in the sense that they want to impose upon us a mode of behavior as opposed to, I think most people are comfortable with the fact that government, for the most part, doesn't intrude in their lives, doesn't, isn't an active part of what they're able to do. And this seems like it's more in the vein of, we're going to make sure that you behave in this way as opposed to allowing you you know, I mean, am I... Right. Well, 
I think that what's interesting is that they will often talk about religious freedom, but in many cases it means the freedom to proselytize. Right. You know, one example is what happened at the Air Force Academy, which is, you know, the Air Force Academy in Colorado Springs, Mm -hmm. there was this climate of really pervasive kind of Christian nationalist harassment, where you had professors introducing themselves to their classes at the beginning of the year, saying, I'm a born-again Christian, I hope that you will find Jesus by the end of the term. They had upperclassmen really aggressively encouraging um, lowerclassmen who they have authority over to convert. And people who didn't want to, you know, attend chapel were marched back to their rooms in what they called a heathen flight. You know, there was a Jewish cadet who was slurred as a Christ killer. But what was interesting was the was what happened when all of this came out there was a big you know there was a big investigation and the finding was that yes this was indeed going on and they came up with a list of rules um, that would basically prohibit forced proselytization to something that you would think that almost everybody in America could agree on but instead there was this huge reaction to these guidelines um, you know James Dobson started talking this is just another part of the war on Christianity and you had various congressmen going on you know talk radio one of them on Dobson show um, Hofstetter from Indiana saying you know I'm so sick of Christian of, of the term evangelical be treated being treated like an epithet and eventually you had 70 congressmen signing a letter to the Air Force Academy um, for, or protesting um, this this new policy at the Air Force Academy, and they dropped it. So even this very kind of small gesture towards toleration, you know, something that would prevent forced yeah. proselytization at a government institution was no lo- is no longer possible in this environment. And I guess that's something that's really an important part of what you're saying, what your book is about, is that these people are very aggressive. It's not as if they're satisfied with, with, with a... Uh, with a standard here, they're they're that seems to me that they're about pushing the 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 goalpost further and further into into the role of government here. Well, I think another thing that's important to realize, and that they often um, speak in defensive terms, but I think that that oh, yeah. usually disingenuous. Yeah. Um, I mean, you hear a lot about the there was you know for instance the bogus war on Christmas, yes, which you'll remember. And yes. what's interesting about that is that if you talk to experts who 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 study the way religion works in public schools, they'll tell you that there's actually more religion in public schools than in any time in our modern history. Um, Because although schools aren't allowed to kind of proclaim a religion or enforce a religion, students can do that, and they are doing that. So a lot of schools have Bible clubs, prayer groups, Bible study, um, kids handing out religious literature, and in fact, when they're thwarted in, in handing out religious literature, you have the ACLU coming in to defend them. And yet, this is not enough, right? This kind yeah, of environment so. where religion can be practiced and spread, but not kind of authoritatively proclaimed, is not enough. What they want is an environment where the school is leading prayers, where the teachers are offering prayers. Right. Okay, well, and I want to go back to something you said earlier, and that is that... Uh, you're saying that this movement, there's about 30 to 40 percent of Americans who declare themselves to be evangelicals. Mm-hmm. And you're, in, I want to make sure I've got this correct, that of, of, of the country, you're saying between 10 and 15 percent of the country would be in line with this, with this much more radical form of uh, Christianity, the imposition of a sort of a, a Christian nationalism. Mm-hmm. Is, well, is, I just want to know, is that what you mean by uh, dominionism, too? 
is is are those are those the folks that are building the uh, uh, well making the world better for for when Christ arise rather than just waiting for uh, for his second coming? Yeah, well, I would say that dominionism, and I should probably define the term for the readers. Huh. But dominionism is very has kind of become the operative political philosophy yeah. for this movement, and dominionism comes from a very a relative no actually a very small movement called Christian Reconstructionism. Yeah, there we go. And Christian Reconstructionism is openly theocratic. Right. Um, they want to impose biblical law throughout the country. That means they they support the execution of homosexuals, the execution of women who are unchaste before marriage, the execution of, um, you know, of doctors who perform abortions, obviously, blasphemers. I was actually on, I was actually on um, a radio show yesterday with a Christian Reconstructionist, and somebody asked him about whether the post office would be allowed, because government is just supposed to be limited to, mm-hmm. to defense and security, and he kind of hemmed and hawed and said, ultimately... Um, probably not, but and so this movement is is pretty small, and it's what's called a post millennialist movement, meaning they don't believe in the rapture, they don't believe in that whole Tim LaHaye scenario. They believe you have to kind of create the kingdom of God here on earth and have it reign for a thousand years, and then Christ can return. So it's very very proactive. Well, and I guess and, I'm sorry. Go ahead. And their political philosophy is dominionism. And dominionism basically calls on Christians to take dominion over all the aspects of government, um, law, you know, public policy, social life, cultural life. And what's happened is that this political philosophy of dominionism has spread beyond the Christian Reconstructionist movement and become very influential in the broader Christian right. Right. This this was a and I cannot remember the name of the older. I, I Frontline did a special uh, on this back in the eighties, and they identified there was one particular guy. In oh, R. J. Rushdoony is that your talking yeah, about? Yeah, yeah, it's a Rushdoony, and and how he had influenced a lot of the people in the Reagan administration. In fact, there was some discussion in the show about uh, how much influence he had on Reagan himself. But these are the this is really I guess you could can it, can you fairly say that these are. The American Taliban, in a, in a manner of speaking, I mean, uh, sort Rush, of this... about Rushduni and the Reconstructionists—that's fair. I mean, I don't yeah. actually think that that's fair to say about the broader right. Christian right or Christian nationalists, but that's absolutely. I mean, if you read the Institutes of Biblical Law, which is Rushduni's, you know, big book, he talks about, yeah. you know, the stoning to death of gay people, and he says, you know, God's punishment is law, is death, and a godly and a godly order will enforce it. So. You know, that sounds a lot like what the Taliban was yeah, doing. Yeah, and I want to remind our listeners, we're speaking with Michelle Goldberg about her book, uh, Kingdom Coming. But I want to just jump back for a real quick second and then say, so of the 10 to 15 percent of the Americans who are involved or believe that this Christian nationalism, let's put those in real numbers. That's somewhere between 25 and 40 million people. Right, we're talking about... Again, a minority of the American population, and even a, min- a minority of, an Amer- of American evangelicals, but a very, very, but a relatively large minority and a very, very tightly organized minority. Exactly, so and the kind that has an in- the most organized faction in American politics. I was just going to say, and the kind of a faction that has that kind of an impact on on the electorate. On and and I guess we could we can follow this thread into the impact that they're having in the smaller states and the impact that has on the <clears throat> electoral college. And you can see sort of this ripple effect of how much of an influence disproportionate to their numbers that they're having on national policy. Well, one number that I have in here that I think people always find striking is that 
during the first Bush administration, but before the two, before the 2004 election, which um, you know, which brought even more Republican senators into the into Congress. In one of the years, I think it was 2002 or 2003, 42 senators voted with the Christian Coalition 100 percent of the time. They got 100 percent approval ratings from the Christian Coalition. Wow. Now, you can imagine that 42% of Americans do not agree on every issue with the Christian coalition. Right. But this is just kind of, I think, a symbol of their, you know, kind of massive overrepresentation. And I, I want to go back. It, and we can talk about the, the Dominionists, the Reconstructionists. Mm-hmm. And we can, we can use the F word on them, can't we? And we begin to describe them. It, Fundamentalists? It, no, no. <laughs> I think I use. Fascist. I mean, I think you mean you're going to say fascist. Yeah. <laughs> I would. I use. I try. I tend to talk about totalitarianism. Yeah. Um, just because fascism I think is such it, a loaded word. Is that? Well, totalitarianism is probably just as loaded, just because <laughs> I think you know fascism is one kind of totalitarianism. Yeah, yeah. I think this is something similar, but it, you know, it's more kind of a theocratic totalitarianism. L- let me put it this way. Another way of putting this would be in terms of the population of America, the people most likely to embrace an American version of fascism or totalitarianism would be these these the people who believe in this in this reconstruction. Oh yeah, I think that that's absolutely true. And you actually find a lot of the influence of this um reconstructionism and other kind of really and, and it's and similar kinds of sects in the militia movement and yeah. the patriot movement. Yeah. And so, you know, in the kind of closest thing we have to an actual, you know, kind of right wing paramilitary force. Yeah. Well after we've defined them, what do we do about them? Yeah. I I you know, there's I it seems that it's a dangerous movement, at least to me. It seems that these people, uh, there's a quote in your book where uh, someone says, if evolution is true, then life has no meaning. meaning. Mm-hmm. And, and someone like that just, it just seems a little bit out of touch and, and willing to do anything, really. Uh, if, if their life is losing meaning because, because of a scientific fact, these people uh, are frightening to me. What, what can we do about that? Is, uh, is there a... Is there an easy way? Is there an easy fix? Or is this something that's well, going to take us, you know, decades to get back to where we might have been? No, I definitely don't see any easy fix. I mean, I think that there's two prongs. In the longer term, in the longer term, there needs to be a rebuilding of kind of the kind of community that has nurtured progressive causes in the past. Right. I mean, one of the things that I try to get across about this movement is that beyond being just a political or an ideological movement, it's also a kind of an all-encompassing social movement. Right. You know, so in a lot of these places, a lot of these really new developments, new exurbs, where there's no community space or social life and people don't have any roots, you know, the communities themselves didn't exist 10 or 15 years ago, the megachurch becomes a kind of all-encompassing social world, and it gives you your politics along with your friendships and your after-school programs and your religion. And I would say that, you know, progressives used to have similar kinds of infrastructure. You know, the union halls and unions provided a kind of a, a community and a place in the world for people, you know, more than just, more than just um, collective bargaining. And so a need to kind of create a community because one of the things that, that I think is spurring this movement is, you know, you quoted that woman is a sense of kind of isolation and alienation and meaningless and meaninglessness and, and despair. But that's a long, long, long-term project, um, as is electoral reform, which is another crucial piece of this yeah. to kind of, you know, both 
break the hold of gerrymandering, which has given some of these right-wing um, congressmen just kind of a perpetual lock on their seats, and moved the real competition to the primaries, which favors kind of most ideological factions. In the shorter term, um, there's a couple things that I think can be done to kind of both to curb some of the excesses of this movement and to raise awareness of it at the same time. One of them is the faith-based initiative, which I find really, really troubling because it allows government finance discrimination in hiring. A lot of that money gets channeled through the states, and so there could be, I would like to see, efforts to pass state laws or state ballot initiatives saying that no state money shall go to any organization that discriminates on the basis of religion. And to me, that seems so kind of fundamentally American that I think that it would seem like common sense to most people, and I think most people would be pretty shocked to realize that that is not actually the way the law is operating right now. Right. Isn't it, isn't it like 99% going to Christian, Christian-based? Well, it's not just that. I mean, yeah, it's 99% going to Christian-based. But more than that, it's that these Christian organizations can then, say, take out an ad for a, you know, a government-financed, say, job training counselor or drug treatment counselor, and say in the advertisement, must be a Christian. You know, and this is a change, you know, because this is like, you know, this is a huge change in the way our kind of social service infrastructure is, um, you know, operating. <clears throat> yeah. And so, you know, and I have in my book examples of social service agencies where, you know, because they were kind of emboldened by the changes that Bush has, um, has kind of, has ordered, you know, by executive order of, you know, people going in and demanding lists of gay employees, demanding to know who's Christian and who's not. Right. You know, it, it's, you know, some, some kind of frightening stuff has happened and often leaves people shocked when they find out that it's actually allowed to happen. Right. I, I guess what uh, I'll add to that horror, if you will, um, by saying that so much of what I'm hearing about the is sort of the pe- congregation of people in these mega churches and the government underwriting a lot of these programs is there's a self-reinforcing mechanism here in place which really devalues what government can provide the kind of leadership that government can be a force for good in in our society. It reinforces the notion that they're not and that they are something to be feared, and, it, and as the economy takes a downturn, people become increasingly resentful of government for whatever reasons, and these people are there and available to take advantage of these very hard feelings that people have. Well, I think it's interesting that this is kind of like, it's big government conservatism that at the same time undermines the kind of fundamentals of the New Deal and the Great Society. Exactly. I mean, it's big government conservatism in that it's channeling, you know, in that it's taking huge amounts of kind of taxpayer money and, and channeling it for social engineering. Uh, but, uh, it's, but behind it is a broader idea that, you know, and if you look at the work of Marvin Olasky, who's the kind of author, he's the author of a book called Compassionate Conservatism, you know, a Bush advisor, Bush wrote the foreword yeah. to his book. Yeah. He, his plan, what he wants to see happen is for all social services to be provided by churches. And he sees conversion in many cases as being key to recovery. And you see a the fact that our government now, and I have, you know, examples of various conferences where people talk about how the evidence of the Bible kind of trumps any empirical studies that people can offer about what works and what doesn't work. Mm-hmm. When you see our government start operating in this way, 
even though even if you your life goes on as normal and most people I think don't feel this movement in their day to day life, yeah. you know, th- so the change might be subtle, but it's also pretty profound. Yeah. And I want to point out what you said at the beginning of the, the interview, which was this movement has taken a pick up steam over the last hundred years, which, as I look back on history, kind of uh, is a corollary to the social movements, the, the women's suffragettes, the, uh, uh, the uh, civil rights, you, you name it. And it seems to be this is the dark side of the, the social movement, in, in my mind anyway. Well, yeah, we are. I'm sorry, I shouldn't be leaving it there, but uh, we're running very, very lo- uh, low on time. Um, anything? Uh, I mean, you know, obviously, I'm I guess. Throw in some, what do you yeah. think about the the uh, uh, Episcopalians appointing a, a woman to lead the church? That's totally off base. But do you think there's any hope? For yeah, the traditional Christian well, churches. Well, absolutely, but this is a really important story, and I wish we had more time to talk about uh-huh. it, because you're seeing a kind of real split within the Episcopalians. Yeah. And um, there's a movement among what I would call the Christian nationalists to kind of um, force a schism between the Anglican Church and the Episcopalian Church. Mm-hmm. And this is, I mean, there's you can read a lot about this on a website called Talk to Action that I contribute to, Okay. because what's going on has really kind of enormous implications for not just the Episcopalian Church in America, but for kind of mainline liberal religion in America. Mm. Well, I think it was it was a victory, at least for, for part of the Episcopalian congregation. I like to think the majority of them, that oh, yeah, this absolutely. woman was... Oh, no, absolutely, yeah. it was. But it, yeah. it also... Um, it forces this... Yeah. You'll see that there is a group called the Institute for Religion and Democracy that funds kind of conservative um, so-called renewal movements. Yeah. And coupled with the, you know, there's a lot of anger in the Anglican Communion, which is, you know, the international body of which the Episcopalian Church is a part. And it was first there was a lot of anger over the consecration of gay bishops, and now that anger has been kind of intensified over what I think, yeah, is this kind of brave and triumphant move on on the part of the Episcopalians. And so what what they're likely to try to do is to basically throw the Episcopalians out of the Anglican Communion and in their place empower a kind of right-wing Anglican church in America. And the reason this is important is because there's all kinds of questions. Who owns church property? Who right, owns, right. you know, so this is a kind of a really a really big struggle. And, and the, the mainline churches, it's not just the Episcopalians. You know, you have the mainline churches, the United Church of Christ, you know, Presbyterians, many of whom are doing amazing work for social justice, but are really, really besieged by this movement and are just starting to figure out kind of where the attack is coming from. Yeah. You're talking about main, main, quote-unquote mainstream religions being um, subjugated in many ways by this Christian nationalism. Um, I want to, we're, we're completely out of time, Michelle <laughs> Goldberg. Um, I want to again, once again, remind our listeners, the book, Kingdom Coming, The Rise of Christian Nationalism. Michelle Goldberg, Salon.com. Thank you very much for being on Weekly Signals. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Take care. Bye-bye. To learn more about Weekly Signals interviews, including upcoming guests, or to download the podcast, visit our website at weeklysignals.com. And be sure to visit nathancallahan.com for daily readings and feature articles. Until next week, I'm Nathan Callahan. And I'm Mike Kaspar. And this is Weekly Signals.